lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judea and all you that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken unto my words, to my words. For these are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And all my servants and all my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. The apostle Peter connected to an ancient prophecy and said, this is that. And I want to speak to you tonight about pointing people to Pentecost. You can be seated. Well, I'm very excited about what the Lord did here this past Sunday. If you know me very well, yeah, amen, you can applaud the Lord for that. It was pretty amazing. In the past two weeks, we've baptized 25 people in the name of Jesus Christ from Sunday to Sunday. 11 on the 17th, 2 on that Wednesday, 2 on Saturday from our Hope Ministry, and 10 this past Sunday. And you know, whenever there's a one zero round number, I'm always wanting to check that number. But uh, you'll hear all the details this coming Sunday, and uh, we go back and check our records to make sure the people that we counted as first-timers were not. But our preliminary count on Sunday was that 20 people received the Holy Ghost for the very first time on Pentecost Sunday right here, and I thank the Lord for that. Amen? That is an amazing thing, and someone said to me, the Lord just enjoys playing with your mind a little bit. Ten and twenty. Ten baptized, twenty Holy Ghosts. I said, yeah, that's exactly right. Just doesn't have as much credibility as eleven and twenty-one, you know, but that is the number, and we're sticking with it. Uh, We finished this spring season through the end of school year, Uh, with a tremendous surge in our attendance, people receiving the Holy Ghost, and I'm very, very thankful for what the Lord has done. Many of the people that are in our midweek service are the folks who have made this a very good year at Atlanta West. So thank you for serving in ministry and working and praying and believing God to see what happened Sunday was kind of a culmination of a lot of hard work and effort by our church for the past number of months. So I commend you, and I appreciate your excellent spirit and working two services on Sunday. We are seeing new people come to the Lord, and we have margin for people to come to our sanctuary. So that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Now, some people say that Pentecostals make too much of a big deal out of the Pentecostal experience. They tend to play it down to try to... Avoid the obvious experience of speaking with other tongues. Some say that tongues have ceased. Some say that it was only relegated to those back on the day of Pentecost or the first century church. Some people say, well, speaking in tongues is just one of the nine gifts of the Spirit. Well, we Pentecostals, you know, we ought to know about our own experience. Amen? So don't let the outsiders define us or define our theology. For we know that just like on the day of Pentecost, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And I stand with Paul to say, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. 
But not everybody gives a message in tongues in a church service or a prayer meeting that one of those nine gifts of the Spirit, the gift of tongues. But many of us, should really I think all of us, I shouldn't say the word many, all of us should pray in the Spirit. As Jude said, but ye beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. And Paul said that you build up yourselves, excuse me, he said, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself. So you build yourself up when you speak with other tongues. So when I hear people play down speaking with other tongues as the initial sign or evidence of the Holy Ghost, I kind of smile. I would have to say sometimes I might even smirk. You know, that people who've never even had the Holy Ghost want to define it and explain it. It's interesting, over the years of reading theological material and study material, how people can be so intellectual and accurate and analytical and logical when uh, arguing various subjects in the Bible or explaining them. And when they get around Acts chapter 2, they skip over, have some kind of really bogus explanation. And I'm reading that thinking, seriously, you could do a whole lot better than that. That's just the unfair treatment that sometimes we get. And then there are churches that, you know, they, they say they want to be an Acts 2 church. I have a book in my library, and kind of the sub-theme is that to be an Acts 2 church... And they are all over the book of Acts except for verse 4 and verse 38. Speaking with tongues, you know, Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive. Somehow they just conveniently skip over to that and get to that part about the apostles' doctrine, prayer, fellowship, breaking of bread, and those kinds of things. Recently in the news, and this is one of those things that has really made me smile and I hope not smirk. There's a major denominational body and their missions board put in the application at the very beginning of this, 10 years ago, that if you were a tongue talker and you professed to speak in tongues, you were disqualified from serving as a missionary in their particular denomination. Well, just a few days ago, and I read this article in Charisma, I've read several versions of this, that they have now removed that as part of the requirement. If you talk in tongues, they're no longer saying you cannot be a missionary. So if you practice that, they've said we've reversed the policy that was in place for 10 years. And this is what they say. Speaking in tongues is an ancient Christian practice recorded in the New Testament in which people pray in a language they do not know, understand, or control. Wow, isn't that news to all of us? The practice died out, they say, until Pentecostalism emerged around the 20th century. Well, we don't believe it died out, and Brother James Turner, who's such an expert in church history, could set the record straight on that. In Pentecostal churches, it is considered one of the many gifts of the Holy Spirit. Well, we know that it is the gift, amen, that produces all those other gifts. Well, now they let these missionaries speak in tongues, what is called their private prayer language, And it speaks to the growing strength of Pentecostal churches in Africa, Asia, and South America where this group are competing for converts and where energized new Christians are enthusiastically embracing the the practice. So in other words, they're trying to convert people to Christianity and these people want the full experience that is taught in the Bible. They want to receive the Holy Ghost and speak with other tongues. This is a quote. In so many parts of the world, these charismatic experiences are normative. 
as if some places it's not. Professor of church history at Wake Forest Divinity School. Religious groups that oppose them get left behind evangelistically. Says the change does not mean that this group will commission missionaries who speak in tongues, but basically it's kind of a don't ask, don't tell. It's taken out of there. You're not disqualified. And they used to be the most ambitious people, but they're finding competition from fast-growing Pentecostal Christianity, which is now an estimated 300 million followers worldwide, and that is about half as many as there really are, and I'll talk about that later. So this missions board that specifically disqualified all missionary candidates who spoke in tongues, now they've said, well, we're changing our position on that. We're no longer going to enforce that. You know, I want to applaud them, but I want to kind of applaud them by saying, you know, really, you're doing this because you have to. And you have to because you cannot stop the flow and move of the Holy Ghost. You cannot stop it. Amen. Amen. What we know is what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 8. The wind bloweth where it listeth, where it wants to. And you hear the sound thereof, but you can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going, whither it cometh or whither. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So I just want to say that these people who think you can dumb down the church, control it, keep it calm and placid, first of all, that kind of an experience with God will not set you free from drugs. It will not deliver you from your past. It will not set you free, amen. It will not save you when the trumpet sounds. Because the Bible said if the Spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, then that same Spirit will quicken your mortal body. You must have that Spirit living inside of you. And you just can't stop it. When a person turns to God in repentance and opens their heart and wants everything God has, when people begin to worship demonstratively and expressively, and especially outside of sophisticated Europe and North America where people have little to live on, but the gospel gives them something to live for, this experience is exploding around the world. You cannot quarantine the wind. You cannot control where the Holy Ghost blows. Amen. So you might as well get out of the way and let God have His way in your church. Amen. And in your life. I don't have to say this here and I'm not kind of preaching for a response. But anyone who wants a, a church that is more sedate, more sophisticated, more solemn, Better go somewhere else. Maybe you can find an empty seat in a denomination that is losing constituents by the millions because there are plenty of empty seats there. But the Pentecostal churches are filling up around the world because people are hungry for a relationship that changes their life. They're looking for what God has so generously given us. So what I, what I want to do tonight is just show you something that may be a review for many of you. I want to just show you in this scripture that the outpouring of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 is not just an isolated biblical occurrence, 
but it is connected to the entirety of the Word of God. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah chapter 28, beginning at verse 9, uh, actually verse 10, Isaiah said, For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people to whom he said, This is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. Now I just want to tell you that there are some people who take Isaiah 28 and they try to say that this verse refers to the Babylonians invading Israel. They were people of another tongue who carried them away captive. But if you will go in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 14... 21, the Apostle Paul interprets Isaiah 28 as referring to the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Which, by the way, if Isaiah said, this is the rest and the refreshing, how could Babylonian captivity be rest and refreshing? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 21, in the law, it is written in the whole of the Old Testament, I could give you the background of that word law there, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, saith the Lord. And then Paul in the next verse says, Wherefore tongues are, not, are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. And all of chapter 14 talks about that. And I'm lifting out this one point to say, that when Isaiah spoke of stammering lips in another tongue, the Apostle Paul said it refers to the practice of speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gives them the utterance. Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. And by the way, I could you know, expand on these passages and deal with a little bit more, but I'm excerpting some key verses of the Bible, so we won't be here all night long. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and will write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, this is a very important idea that God, instead of writing the law in tables of stone, would write in the fleshly tables of our heart. The difference between the way we live for God in the New Testament compared to the way they tried to live for God in the Old is what Paul would describe in Romans chapter 7 when he said, O wretched man that I am, I know what to do. It's in my mind. My conscience tells me what to do. But I do not have the power to live by what the law taught. I can't live it. The Bible said that the law was weak through the flesh. It wasn't weak in concept or content. It was weak by our inability to live it. But the Holy Ghost gives us the ability when God writes His law in our inward part, then the things we used to hate we now love. And what was impossible due to in the past, we do out of our spiritual nature. I know there's a continual struggle of flesh versus spirit. But that's what Jeremiah said. I will write it in their hearts. The New Testament writer of the book of Hebrews addressed this and applied it 
to the Holy Ghost in the New Testament, not to a renewed Israel in the Millennial Kingdom. Hebrews 8 and 10. And here's a quotation. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. Hebrews 8, 15 through 20 repeats the same idea. Excuse me, 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. He's referring to the price of Calvary. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. And once again, I'm in the middle of a passage that I could go on and on with. But I just want to show you that the New Testament writers connected the Holy Ghost to the Old Testament prophecies and the writer of Hebrews connects us to the prophecy of Jeremiah. Joel chapter 2, Old Testament prophet Joel verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaidens, handmaids in those days will I pour out of my spirit. Now, this is very significant because the Spirit of God moved by the Holy Ghost. This is an important thing to understand. That God is a spirit. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the same Spirit of God that moved on the face of the waters in Genesis in the beginning is the same Spirit that fills us. But Jesus, the Bible said, had the Spirit without measure. We don't have the Spirit without measure because we're not God in flesh. But there is no difference between the Holy Ghost of the Old Testament and the Holy Ghost of the New In kind, K-I-N-D. It's not a different spirit because God cannot have a different spirit. It's who He is. The difference is in dimension. In the Old Testament, prophets or judges or special people of God were empowered by the Spirit of God. The Holy Ghost came on them and used them to do notable things, whether to speak or carry the gates of a city or kill hundreds of enemy men or whatever it was. That's the same Holy Ghost. But Joel said, there is a day coming when my spirit will not just be for a select few prophets or special people, but I'm going to pour out of my spirit on all flesh. It's not just going to be the guy in the pulpit. It's going to be everybody in the pew. It's going to be every believer, a nation of priests. That was the will of God from the beginning. So, the Apostle Peter, on the day of Pentecost, is faced with this question. What meaneth this? Some mocking, you know, these men are drunk. And Peter stands up and he connects what is happening in Acts chapter 2 back to the prophecy of Joel And I'll read it again, Acts 2.16. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. So all of you Jewish people who are skeptical of what is going on today, this is not some aberration. This is the fulfillment of God's plan. 
And it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaids, I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. This past Sunday, we had a four-year-old little girl receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Amen. She's not old, old enough to be a priest or a prophet. We're not ready to put her on the, in the Sunday school class teaching, but upon children. Amen. It is to an open-hearted person that the Holy Ghost is poured out. It is an all-flesh revival. Amen. So this Old Testament pointed ahead to Pentecost, and the New Testament translates those verses or applies them as the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Along comes John the Baptist. Malachi 4 ends with this idea that he shall send Elijah, who is John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, worked no miracles, but told the truth about Jesus. And he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. John the Baptist comes, and he is a rough-hewn prophet, kind of in the spirit, power, and the persona of Elijah. He's kind of a rough man, you know. And uh, he, he preaches repentance to very hard-hearted people. You may remember the Old Testament prophet that the Lord said, I'm going to make your head harder than theirs. That's John the Baptist. Amen. He comes and he says, The axe is laid to the root of the tree, and every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. He asked them one time, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You're a generation of vipers, you know. Wouldn't you like John the Baptist to be your pastor? Probably be a pretty awesome church, huh? And by the way, he, he was out in the wilderness preaching and he emptied the villages and towns. They were hungry for God and they came out to hear him say, repent. People are hungry for a right relationship with God. John in Matthew chapter 11. This is Jesus speaking of him. Kind of giving him a eulogy. But what went you out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you. And more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before you. And there are Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah about the ministry of John the Baptist, who is, who is the guy who is going to raise up every valley and bring every mountain low. And he's going to make the crooked way straight and the rough places smooth or plain. And Jesus is talking about John. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. He's an Old Testament prophet. He's preaching in the New Testament. But the New Testament is, occurs at the death of Jesus Christ. That's the New Testament in my blood. And the New Testament is received on Acts, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. So the New Testament began with Acts 2 when the Lord wrote His Spirit, His law in our heart. But we get into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... You know, spiritually or from a testament point of view, we're still living under the law. We're not under grace until the Holy Ghost comes. And, and John is an Old Testament prophet. And this is what John said in Matthew 3.11. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But he that cometh after me. Now, 
when I, I'm going to talk about the ministry of John and Jesus. And I want you to see that even in the Gospels, that they're pointing to Pentecost. They're pointing people to a future event that has not happened in Matthew, didn't happen in Mark, doesn't happen in Luke, didn't happen in John. It does not occur until Acts chapter 2, verse 4. And John and Jesus are preaching too that they're pointing people to that. Of course, John pointed people to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So John says, Matthew 3.11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. That's what Jesus is coming to do. John is a baptizer in water only unto repentance. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Ghost. But not while he's here on earth. Does not happen till after he has ascended. Just for your interest, Luke chapter 3.16 is a very similar verse by John. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke are synoptic gospels they view together. <clears throat> so, John preaches like this. And you would think, well, maybe there's some people that just kind of calcified around the pe- preaching of John the Baptist. Well, we love to go to, Matthew, to Acts chapter 19. I'm going to go there now, not later. When, you know, about 25 years after Pentecost, they run into these disciples of John at Ephesus who are still baptizing under repentance. They're still looking for the Messiah to come. They know John baptizes with water, but there's one coming after me. He's mightier than I. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And they're still believing that that will come. But they didn't see it tweeted. They didn't see it on Instagram. It wasn't on Facebook for them. You know, you think how slow news traveled. So these people, this pocket of people, did not know that. But in Acts chapter 19, 1... And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples. He said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Some modern translations may say, Did you receive the Holy Ghost when you believe? I'll take either angle of that as get you to the same point. If you didn't receive the Holy Ghost when you believed, or if you haven't received it since you believed, It's still a promise. And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. Now you have to understand the context. We did not know it was available. They knew that it was coming because John said that. They're disciples of John the Baptist. And they know that John is pointing people toward Pentecost. And he points these people toward the Pentecostal experience, but they don't get it. Well, how are you baptized? Under John's baptism. And said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him, that should come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, and I've said this before along the way, I love these, I love these disciples, 12 men or so, because they, they were not locked down and saying, well, if we do that, then we're, we're just kind of rejecting what John taught us. John the Baptist told us that all you have to do is repent and be baptized under repentance. And we've done that. And that was good enough for John the Baptist. It ought to be good enough for us. But John the Baptist said, I'm pointing you towards something. I'm pointing you to the one that is coming after me that is mightier than I. 
Why would you just want to believe and be baptized the wrong way, an obsolete way, if you knew that there was something better that had arrived? And these men, when they heard that, immediately were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 5. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. So John the Baptist says, I'm pointing you to Pentecost and all the way to Acts 19 when some of the disciples of John hear this for the very first time, they immediately embrace the Acts chapter 2 experience. Now let's talk about the ministry of Jesus. And now we believe that the cross was the focal point of God's plan. Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, right? And we know that everything looks to the cross of Christ And that the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That we rely on what Jesus did. The way we know we're saved is if we have the blood of Jesus Christ applied to our lives. And there is nothing else that will save you but the blood of Jesus Christ. But if Jesus would have died, been buried and rose again on the third day, ascended up into heaven and not sent back His Spirit, then we could not have the power of the Holy Ghost. So as significant as Calvary was, Jesus Himself pointed His disciples ahead to Pentecost. Amen? So let's just see how He did that. John chapter 3. Now I'm just going to breeze a little bit through John 3 when Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. can't see it. You have to be born of water and of spirit to enter into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus doesn't get this, of course. And this is when Jesus tells him, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Nicodemus, you were born of Jewish flesh and you're a Jew and you're a seed of, you're the child of Abraham by the flesh. But that you're not really the child of Abraham until you're born of the Spirit. Because John said that we were born not of the will of the flesh, not of man, but born of God. It takes a supernatural birth to get you in the kingdom of God. That's why we don't believe that just being born into a Christian family or consenting to baptism by itself as a right and believing on the Lord in itself will save you. It takes the power of this Holy Ghost coming inside of you to revolutionize your life. You must have the birth of the Spirit. Nicodemus is struggling with the idea that his first birth was not adequate. After all, I'm a master in Israel. I'm a son of Abraham. But Jesus says, that's not going to get the job done, Nicodemus. You've got to be born again. That birth was not good enough to save you. Amen. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Sometimes preaching here and there around the country, I love this verse. Because I think a lot of people try to lead churches by the flesh. Intelligent flesh good-looking flesh, practiced-up flesh, polished flesh, and I believe in doing everything you can with excellence. We believe in education. We're going to have Graduate Sunday in about 10 days or so. We're all for that. Amen? But we are a this and that church because everything done in the flesh just produces more of the same. And we cannot have a church that is run by the flesh, led by the flesh, 
executed all our programs and whatever we do by the flesh. But people who sing and people who play, people who preach, people who lead, people who work in ministry must have the power of the Spirit vibrantly working in their lives. You've got to be born again. And if you got born again... Amen. I'll get to this later, but Paul told the Galatians, if you started out in the flesh, do you think you're going to be, excuse me, in the spirit, do you think you're going to be perfected in the flesh? If you started in the flesh, that's what this New Testament church is about. It is about a spirit-empowered church. And recently I preached two or three messages on the superiority of the spiritual. I hope you haven't forgotten that. That we have the privilege of operating in a higher level, amen, than just a carnal human intellectual level. John 3, 6. Mark it down. Don't forget that verse. And John 3 and 8 is when Jesus tells Nicodemus about the wind. Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wants to. You hear the sound, you can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going. Do you think that might be why on the day of Pentecost there was a sound as of a rushing mighty wind that filled all the house where they were sitting? Amen. And I believe there's probably a little application here that when someone gets the Holy Ghost... You know, they may be repenting and praying and trying to get themselves in the right position with God. But when you prepare your heart for the Lord and when the Holy Ghost comes, it's like the wind just blew in. One minute you're speaking English or whatever your native tongue is and in the next moment you're speaking in a language you never learned. It's just like something blew in, amen? And the breath of God comes out through the power of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. John chapter 7. These are the teachings of Jesus about the Holy Ghost. Pointing, pointing, pointing ahead to Pentecost. This is the Feast of Tabernacles, I believe. It's on the last day, that great day of the feast. Um, Alfred Edersheim talking about the life of Christ in this passage is pretty dramatic probably at this moment. Would have been the, the ceremony of the pouring of the water. There's a hushed silence across the people. Probably at that moment in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. But not at that moment could Jesus give you what he's getting ready to promise. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly, You know, if we get sophisticated, we want to say innermost being. That's okay. We don't want to scare people that don't understand ghost and belly and stuff like that, right? So don't think we're compromising if we say Holy Spirit. You know, we we get that in our culture. So Jesus said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This spake he of the Spirit. I'll go on to that verse, but when you receive the Holy Ghost, it's not Forced, it flows like rivers of living water. Amen. It's, they, were, they spoke with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, the ability to speak. So that's why we don't teach people to speak in tongues. We don't think you got to say, yeah, 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 la, 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 whatever, 27 times or whatever. We don't believe in that. We believe in repenting of your sins, 
Surrendering your heart to God in worship. That's not a formula that man has concocted. We have a simple Bible formula. And I like what Brother Herring said about focusing on the Lord. Those are practical things. All of that was very good to receive the Holy Ghost. But when you receive the Holy Ghost, it is like rivers of living water. It just happens like that. But this spake he, verse 39, of the Spirit, which they that believe on Him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given. This is John's commentary in parentheses. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. John tells us that this is not going to happen until after the death, the burial, the resurrection, and I believe the ascension. I mean, we know it was after the ascension of Jesus Christ. When He is exalted, glorified, ascended back up into heaven, He will send back His Spirit. So no one, no one can receive the Holy Ghost yet. They can't receive it in John 7. They have to wait till after Jesus is glorified. That's when they can experience it. Now, in, in Luke chapter 11, and there is a, another parallel passage. Jesus is teaching on prayer. And I say unto you, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and it shall be, and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. I believe that maybe in our lives in a practical way, that this speaks of three dimensions of prayer. That sometimes it doesn't happen at the first dimension and you keep praying. And he's just given us an example in this chapter about importunity, which is praying until something happens, you know. Knocking it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, shall he offer him a scorpion? No dad would do that. No good dad. If you then, being evil of the earth, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Amen. We know another passage parallels good gifts. But here, here is what I want us to understand. So it's pointing ahead, pointing ahead, pointing ahead. These are the words of Jesus Christ. But he says, everyone that asks receives. Everyone that seeks finds. Everyone that knocks opens. There are some people who say, well, I just don't know if the Holy Ghost is for me. Well, I have good news. It is for you and your children, right? Last Wednesday night, and to them that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. It is for you. Amen. And if you ask, you shall receive. And if you seek, you will find. If you will knock, the door will be open unto you. And this passage in Luke 11 is talking about the Holy Ghost. That He will give you the Holy Ghost. He's looking ahead to something that will happen. John chapter 14. A number of places over several chapters, three chapters maybe, Jesus speaks of the Comforter. I want to give you just some key verses, but you should read through John 14 through 16 and even love the prayer of John 17, uh, the words of Jesus. This is all one long discourse before His betrayal. 
John 14, 16. And I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another comforter, that He may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth Him not, neither knoweth Him, but you know Him, for He dwelleth with you. Now who was, that, who was He talking about? Himself. You don't know who this is, but guess what? I am with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Now people who do not understand the nature of God make this the most confusing verse in the world. How can you be the Son and you're going to send the Spirit and you're going to pray for the Father? And What in the world is this verse? But when we understand that Jesus Christ was God in flesh, Colossians 2, 9, that all the fullness of the God had dwelt in him bodily. For Jesus to say, when you have seen me, Thomas, you have seen the Father. Amen. The Father dwelleth in me. Jesus said, I cannot do anything of myself, but the Father in me, he does the works. As a man, Jesus fell asleep, Jesus was tired, all of that. But the spirit that dwelt in him was the same spirit. Remember, God doesn't have two different spirits. The Holy Spirit is a spirit that empowered Jesus. It's a spirit that said, let there be light. Amen. The Lord, our hero Israel, the Lord, our God is one Lord. And Jesus said, beside me, excuse me, the Lord said in the Old Testament, beside me, there is no other. I know not any. I look around and I'm here by myself. Amen. So this speaks of relationship, not personages. Not person one, two, three, but relationship of spirit and humanity and the spirit coming back. Jesus said, I will come to you. That's why I'm a little uncomfortable when we talk about the Holy Ghost as an it. They got it. You got it. I know we sometimes say that. But what really happened to you is what the Bible said. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. When you receive the Holy Ghost, it is not an experience. It is the initiation of a relationship with Almighty God. It is Christ in you. I am with you, but I shall be in you. Amen. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. I feel like the Lord's giving somebody an understanding right now. John 14, 25. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he, will, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have sent unto you. So now Jesus begins to talk about what the Spirit of the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, will do. I'm going to come to you. That's what the Spirit is. It's going to teach you. It's going to bring things to your remembrance. John 15, 26. But when the Comforter has come, amen. This is chapter 15, verse 26. John 15, 26. But when the Comforter has come, who I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. That's what the Holy Ghost does. And guess what? That's what the Spirit did in the Old Testament writers. They wrote about Jesus. These are they that testify of me. The Holy Scriptures, Jesus said, they testify of me. 
So Jesus said, when the Holy Ghost comes into you, it's going to be a testimony of me. I'll jump ahead just to connect these verses. But Jesus said, but you shall receive, this is Acts 1 and 8, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me. The Holy Ghost is going to empower you to be a witness to the world of me. Amen. Because it's all about Jesus. Amen. John 16 verse 7. Pointing people to Pentecost. Jesus, nevertheless I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. We understand I'm here in the flesh. I'm going to send back my spirit. But I've got to die, be buried, raised, be raised again on the third day. After my ascension, I'm going to send it back. But as long as I'm here in the flesh, that dimension of my spirit cannot happen. John 16, 13. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself. In other words, this spirit is not a third entity. It is not, a, it is not a, a, an autonomous entity, the Holy Spirit. You know, I understand that very sincere people get confused when they pray because they're trying to, and this is true, I've read about this. You know, the people say, well, you know, we feel like the, that people, not enough people are praying to the Holy Spirit. Pray to the Father, pray to the Son, pray to the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm glad that I know that it's all included in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? So I can pray to my heavenly Father in the name of Jesus Christ, and I have spoken to God Almighty, the sovereign of the universe. So Jesus said, He's not going to speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak, and He will show you things to come. Here's a function of the Spirit, the Comforter. John 20, 21. Jesus, there said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. This is pretty neat. John 20, 21 is the great commission of the book of John. Just like Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24. This is John's one line, line statement of Jesus Christ. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. And if you think about everything that happened in the sending of Jesus Christ to this earth, and now Jesus commissions us to go in His name, that is a powerful commission. And when He had said this... He breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now some people say, well, that's when they got it, right then. You have just disregarded every other scripture in the Bible about when the Holy Ghost was given and everything that has already been said. According to the same writer in chapter 7, He said the Holy Ghost was not yet given for Jesus was not yet glorified. So nobody received the Holy Ghost in John 20, 22. But Jesus kind of empowered them. Not empowered them. He gave them a hint. Receive you the Holy Ghost. It's going to be like that. It's going to be like breath. Luke 24. Words of Jesus. 24, 46. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I sinned, I did not, I haven't sent, 
But I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Jesus is pointing them to Pentecost. It is not time. This is not the place. You've got to leave here and go there. He's pointing them to that. Verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him. And guess what they did? They returned to Jerusalem with joy. They did what Jesus said. They went back to wait for the Holy Ghost. And they were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus is now, this is now Luke. Luke acts as a sequel. Luke finishes. Now Acts is going to kind of pick it up. Kind of a little crossover uh, you know, coverage here. Acts 1 and 4. Being assembled together with them, commanded that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. It's getting close, guys. I'm pointing you to Pentecost. In verse 6, the conversation continues. And when they were come together, they asked them, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time when everything comes back in us and the great dynasty of Israel? I cannot not imagine Jesus shaking his head. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the time or the season which the Father has put in his own power, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. That's Acts chapter 1, and we don't have to wait long for Acts chapter 2 to come. And when, Acts chapter 2, 1, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, for this message tonight, you're saying finally come. We've been waiting all night to get to Acts 2. <laughs> but do you see in your Bible, and again, I know for some of you that have been around church a long time, this is a review for you. But some people have never seen the connectedness of the Scriptures, of the pointing of the prophecies and the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus and everything he said. Why we understand as apostolic people that no one received the Holy Ghost before Acts 2. And we make a big deal out of Acts 2 because the Bible does. Isaiah did, Jeremiah did, Joel did. All of those passages that were interpreted by New Testament writers and apostles as pointing to Pentecost and the words of John the Baptist and the words of Jesus himself that point us to this precise moment. Now, now may understand that Pentecost is a Jewish feast day. And there are three mandatory feasts and they have all come to Jerusalem. And there are devout men dwelling in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven. These are Jewish people who have come to celebrate this tradition of Pentecost. Passover, 50 days later, Pentecost. And they're there in Jerusalem strategically placed by God 
Amen. So this is so incredible to me that when they start speaking in tongues, they're speaking in at least 18 different languages and they're hearing them speak in the languages where we were born. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, dwellers of Mesopotamia, all of those people, you know, they're speaking in our languages and God is so amazing the way He orchestrated the coming together of all of these people for this precise event, the birthday of the church and the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. So why do we make such a big deal out of receiving the Holy Ghost and why do we take everybody to Acts 2? It's because everything else in the Bible has pointed to this opportunity for you to be saved. Amen? And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord. Everybody says one mind and one accord. And they might have been there, but that's not what the Bible says. They were all with one accord. They had one purpose. And they were in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. They were sitting when they received the Holy Ghost. So you don't have to stand till your knees are buckling to receive the Holy Ghost. Amen. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues, forked tongues, like as a fire that sat upon each of them. So there was the corporate experience of the, the wind blowing in the room. And then there was the individual experience of the tongues of fire hovering over their head. Tongues of fire. And they were uh, set upon each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, we do not see the repetition of the wind or the fire in every case. But guess what? If God decided to let wind, the sound of wind or real wind, or if God wanted there to be tongues of fire again, he could. But the uniform sign that happened on that day and happened again in Acts 8 and 10 and 19 and all the references of Paul and 1 Corinthians, all of those things, the tongues was a uniform sign that continued after that. Now, I want the musicians to come, but let me just kind of wrap up. I won't get finished with this message. But in, in chapter 2, I've already read it, but Peter refers back to Joel's prophecy. Remember that? This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. But in Acts 2.32, Jesus said, or Paul, Peter says in his preaching, This Jesus hath God raised up. So I'm going to go in media all the way to Acts 2.32. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand, by the, the right hand is the figurative expression of the power of God. By the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, He, Jesus Christ, hath shed forth this which you now see and hear. Peter says, I'm not done with my sermon, Peter. This is the Apostle Peter, not me. Apostle Peter says, now this is that that was spoken of by Joel. But Jesus, you crucified Him. God raised Him from the dead. And it is Jesus that has now shed forth this. You're seeing these people. These are not drunk as you suppose. How hear we every man in the language wherein we were born. Jesus did this. He has shed forth this which you now both see and hear. Therefore let all the house of Israel know surely he said in verse 36. That this same Jesus, this same Jesus whom you have crucified. He's made both Lord and Christ. Now that's when they were cut to the heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Amen. 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise, last Wednesday night, this was my text. The promise is unto you, you standing here with blood on your hands. It's to your children that you said, let his blood be on us and on our children. It works to the second generation. Amen. And to all that are far off, every Gentile person, to the far reaches of the earth, even as many as the Lord our God shall call, to the last person that God chooses and says, that's it, I'm finished with the Gentile age. That's the fullness of the Gentiles. But until then, the power of the Holy Ghost is available. Amen? If you'd please stand with me now. I just want, I wanted to give you some perspective, biblical perspective about our faith. That it's not rooted in the choir, kind of just singing and carrying on and like doing a great job. I don't mean carrying on, you know. You know what I mean. Except during the Chiefs or Christ presentation, maybe. So that's all a bunch of emotionalism. Yeah, we are highly emotional. You worship other gods that are out on the field or out on the stage, and we worship the one true living God. That's who we go crazy over. We're kind of rabid, you know. We're, we love Him. But some people just try to say, well, it's emotionalism. And, you know, and if you look up in the dictionary, glossolalia, it's called unintelligible speaking. Well, this is not glossolalia, unintelligible speaking. I don't know what language you may be speaking, but it is in a bona fide language. Paul said we speak with the tongues, if we speak with the tongues of men and of angels. So maybe sometimes people speak in that language. But it's a language. Somebody speaks that language. It may be a dead language somewhere in world history or a live language. And there are examples of people in modern times, it happened to me when I was 18, of hearing someone receive the Holy Ghost and speaking in English when they did not speak English. That was other tongues to them. Right? We're just too Americanized. You know, we think the whole world speaks or understands English. So we say, speak with other tongues. We think that means Spanish. Well, they may speak Spanish. And if you speak Spanish and receive the Holy Ghost, you're not going to speak Spanish. Amen. It's another tongue. So people try, you know, they're trying to always define us and pigeonhole us and, and kind of shove Pentecostalism down to a non-theological, emotional, throw a scripture together here and there. But I will tell you that this is that that was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And all of the Bible points to this as the plan of salvation. So would you, if you have a few minutes, if you don't have to get up too early in the morning, but you want to just come to the altar and rejoice in the Lord, and we need to do what the Bible did, we need to point people to Pentecost because it is God's plan of salvation. Amen? Amen.